Hi everyone, welcome to our fifth episode of You Chat Too Much. What you've noticed already is that I'm introducing it because Joe is not here. Joe's actually due to fly out um, today to Dubai for a few days and he messaged me saying he can't fit us in. So I, I obviously questioned his loyalty and his commitment to the podcast and I'm sure all of you are hoping to give, give him some stick if you see him. Um, but we're still going to carry on. Uh, he's going to be in Dubai for the whole week with his boys. Got no time for us. So it's important that we carry on doing the podcast on a weekly basis. So today we, uh, I have a colleague and a friend with us who is Andy. I'm going to ask him to, well, first of all, welcome Andy and want you to kind of introduce yourself, tell people where you're from, what you've been doing, where you're at in this uh, point of life. Thanks, Majid. So I'm Andy. So I'm a, a colleague of Joe and Majid's. So I'm an English teacher at St. Joseph's in Malaysia. Um, I originally hail from East Anglia, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my own journey for education. So I started off living in East Anglia, then moved up to the north of England and teacher trained there and taught in Blackburn, then moved out to the Middle East and taught there for a few years. And then in 2016, uh, came out to Malaysia and have been here ever since. So Andy, are you you live, do you live? Are you from Norwich or from the Norfolk area? Well, that's an interesting question actually, because uh, I'm not from Norwich, no. But Norwich is the only city of note in East Anglia, um, so I'm from near Great Yarmouth. Okay. So my question, what I'm getting at, is what's your local supermarket? Oh well, it would probably be Morrison's, I think. You don't have a Waitrose nowhere near like like Joe. No. No, I'm from Goulston, which is a small town near Yarmouth. Um, so no, there's no Waitrose there. Okay, all right. Ready to move on then. Okay, so our, uh, our topic today is education. Um, so this is our fifth episode. Um, it's kind of, kind of a funny topic to talk about because we're both teachers, including Joe as well. Joe's a teacher. Um, but there are, like like... The other episodes we need to talk about, there are certain to topics we need to talk about education, some things that don't get discussed, and hopefully we'll, we'll discuss that in this episode. So, Andy, do you want to start with your experience of education uh, and generally your thoughts of it up to now? Yeah, well, I was thinking about this quite a lot over the last few days, and, and you kind of hinted at it in the introduction in, in a roundabout way. So I come from a small town near Great Yarmouth. Now, you mentioned Joe coming from Norfolk. Um, so when I first met Joe, for example, and I said to him that I was from Norfolk as well, the part of Norfolk that I come from, I think, is quite different to the part that he comes from. Um, and that means that my educational background was quite, in some ways, unique, I think, in that I went to a very, very poor secondary school and primary school in, a, in an area of poverty, essentially. And we hear a lot about inner city and inner town poverty in the UK, Manchester, London, Birmingham. But what you don't hear as much about is kind of what they call the forgotten poverty of the UK, which you find in seaside resorts. So Hartlepool, Yarmouth, Southend, Blackpool is probably the most um, foremost of those towns. But Yarmouth's not far behind it. Um, so I went to a school which was a, a, essentially a, a, a poor school. Um, but I came from a very good background, if that makes sense. So I, I suppose you'd call it a middle class background in that my parents had lived around the world and traveled, but it just so happened that I went to this school, which was not a great school. So, so I had this kind of hybrid experience where at home I was surrounded by books and by culture. Um, I think they call it cultural capital. The cultural capital I was surrounded by was as good as you're gonna get. But then I went to the school place and it was completely different. Um, and I was surrounded by completely different sorts of people um, and, and I was aware quite quickly that the education that I was getting w w was not great. Um, so in school, I had this slightly strange relationship with school where I was often in classes with students who weren't particularly focused on school. There was issues with behavior. Um, and I think probably I'm talking here to a PE teacher, but sport allowed me to kind of ingratiate myself with everyone in the school, it, um, regardless of their kind of interest in academics. Um, so, so that meant the school was a very happy experience for me. But I was well aware 
that when I went home and, for example, I'd associate with some of my parents' friends who who'd lived around the world and were really well educated and sometimes had had sort of had very comfortable existences. It was completely different to what I was experiencing every day. Um, and I think looking back, I've got my best friend who also went to the same school as me is now a doctor. Um, and he says half mockingly, if it had gone to a better secondary school, he'd have gone to Oxford or Cambridge for university. Um, but he and I both agree that, that going to that school was one of the best things that ever happened to us because it gave us the yin and the yang. And I've still got friends now from around the Yarmouth area who some of our listeners from our workplace would be surprised to find that I'm friends with these individuals. Mm. And when I go home, you, you flip back into a kind of slightly different mode. And as I said, sport was something that allowed me to connect with different groups. Um, so then I left the school and I did well and I really enjoyed it. And then I moved on because I'd done well at school. I moved on to a, a sixth form college, which was by its nature meant to remove most of the individuals I'd been to school with because it was a sixth form college for quite high performance students, basically to do A-levels. So 85% of the people I went to school with just disappeared and I was left with 10, 15%. And I found that adaption very, very difficult. And I didn't like it. Um, I, I enjoyed the academics and I enjoyed doing the A-levels. But suddenly I was dealing with completely different sorts of people. And then when I went to university, I went to the University of East Anglia, which is a, is a really good university. And it, it narrowed again. And suddenly I was with three or 4% of the types of people I went to school with. And again, academically loved it, absolutely loved the learning. But socially, I, I found the transitions very difficult. Um, I, I don't have any issue with that now, but at the time, I found it very, very um, disturbing in a way that there was a group of people that I'd become used to. Uh, and there's also all that stuff about growing up when you, you kind of feel like you're being taken into different classes and different groups. So I think my own class, if you like, or background is slightly unusual and it's always made different clusters that I end up in educationally um, different to, to, to what we might find with a lot of our colleagues in terms of their own school and college and university experience. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got a couple of questions from what you said. How, you, you talk about coming from a middle class background. How, how did that affect your school life or even just education? You talked about how you were from a middle school, uh, sorry, middle class uh, background, but you went to a school which was, didn't reflect that. So how did you find that experience itself? Uh, well, it's interesting because my parents' background, I, I won't go into details about my dad's job in particular, but it, it allowed him to travel a lot, basically, travel a lot. But they, my mum, he came from a council estate in Great Yarmouth, five children, two bedrooms, no money, my granddad was a soldier, a career soldier. So he was a soldier from 16 through until 40-odd. Um, no money for an infantryman then. Um, there, there is more so now, but not then. So he'd been selected, my father, to go to a grammar school based on the 11 plus. Now, grammar schools now have got a bad rep as these kind of elitist organisations that separate people into worker drone and office drone and blue collar drone. At the time, they were genuinely a vehicle of social mobility. So he went to this grammar school, which basically meant he got a classical education, but he was from a council estate. Mm. Um, so that was his passport in the early 60s to kind of more aspirations. Um, so in terms of that background, he, he had this kind of hybrid in him as well. In that he had his own background. And then because of the education that he was able to get because of his ability and then the job that he was able to get because of the opportunities the education had afforded him, um, he was a very um, su sort of successful person in his own field, but not somebody who had any interest in kind of keeping up with the Joneses um, in terms of class. So, so he had his own story there. In terms of my own difficulties at school, none. I've, had, I've got friends, in fact, some of them at our school, who come from similar sorts of places, who, who talk, but, and were, you know, obviously very intelligent people. Um, is why we, we work with them today. They've been to university and et cetera. But they talk about feeling 
that they couldn't share their intelligence or share their ability for want of being kind of mocked or scorned upon. As I said at the start, for me, sport gave me a kind of confidence that I've kept in a way that I wasn't bothered about putting my hand up to answer a question about a Shakespearean sonnet, or I wasn't bothered about disagreeing with people, or I wasn't bothered about um, what the group were doing, what the crowd were doing. And I think it was because I played football, I played rugby, and it gave you that, again, that sort of passport into a different crew that I would use. I would use that as a leverage. So when they were all off out drinking down the beach on a Friday night or going out for, you know, organised fights with other schools, I wouldn't go. But I would use the sport as a passport to allow me to basically behave how I wanted to behave rather than what some of my other friends did who didn't have the passport of sport. And as we talked about some of our colleagues at school, they, they would hide it. They would hide that and they would sit quietly and get the A on their work, but not tell anyone or not put their hand up. So it, it never had any impact other than as I got to a sort of 14, 15, um, without being kind of dismissive, I realised that I didn't want to engage in the type of world that some of these individuals were and where I could see them heading. I could see what was around the corner in their late teens and 20s and, and I didn't want to go there. So for me, education in a way was a threat rather than an opportunity because the threat was you get swept up in that and it takes you along with you with them. And I think, as I say, sport was the confidence booster that meant that I could just flick it off. It never even tempted me, really. Um, yeah. If not, I think, I think it would have done. It sounds, it sounds like uh, you mentioned it a few times as a sport gave you that sense of belonging um, and it gave you that comfort and, and, and confidence to be able to do the things that you did. Um, I could definitely relate to that when I share, share my story. I think there's, there's a very similar thing to there. You, you, meant, you also said something about like, you come, like you're coming from your, it's not so much about your middle class background, but more about your background itself. But then you said when you went to school, education wasn't great. So what did you do to, to counteract that? Like, what did you do to make that better for yourself? Were there things that you did at home or was it your mentality or what, what did you do to make sure you got the most out of your education? I think it was only when I got to sixth form and at school I did well. Sixth form and university, I sort of excelled really. But it wasn't so much to do with me. I think when I was younger, it was my parents. Um, as I say, my, my, my dad's background was, was completely and utterly humble. But he's one of the most well-read people I know still. Um, you know, he converted one of our bedrooms into a library at home. You know, so we had to share a room, me and my, one of my brothers. But you'd go into this room and, and he was into history, literature, films, music, sport, everything. He knew stuff about everything. And because of his job, he was exposing my brothers and I to people from a completely different world. So I'd go to school and there was one type of person. And then I'd go home and there'd be a friend of his or her or my mum's come round. And it was like a different world. Mm -hmm. These people talking about living in these places and knowing these different people and having these sorts of jobs. So I had this kind of mixture, um, but it wasn't so much anything that I did. I think it was the environment they created for me. Um, you know, I, I could have easily been swept up, I think, with, with, with less virtuous individuals if it hadn't been for the world they created for us. That's, um, that's a massive lesson for us as parents as well, that because that's something that's, that can be done subtly, uh, in, like you said, in an environment that doesn't have to be forced it's just that you create that environment for learning to occur. You, you promote it, uh, and you and what it sound like. What it sounds like from from what you when you're talking is that you've got a, a what's it called a wholesome education, rather than just an education in school. You had more to your education, more facets to it, uh, which I think your parents did did a good job in. And and we will talk about a little bit uh, about what we would advise as education to to other parents as well. Um, I've already kind of talked in my own experience. I've talked um, more about like schools. There was a lot of stuff going on in school, but for me, um, and I, I, I want to know if, if there was any similarities with your thought process. It was I, I worked out from an early age how to play the system, and I knew that there were hoops to jump through. So when it came to year ten and eleven, like the golden years of school, when you're trying to pass your GCSEs. Um, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to go into college and I knew what grades I needed to, to get. Um, 
and it was it was basically um, A stars to C's. It was ne- it was not necessarily get A stars or get A's. It was just make sure you get those grades. It was considered passes. So uh, from year ten onwards, I kind of knew how I needed to get those grades. And what what one of the things I did was I used the target grade set by the teachers, um, and I used that as my as my um, go to in terms of where what I need to achieve. So I only did what I needed to do to get those target grades. Now looking back as a teacher myself, potentially, yeah, I think I could have got better grades. I passed all my grades, got all A stars to C, but uh, I never got any A's. They were all B's and C's. But the I was quite. I'm still quite happy that I made that decision because, like what you said, I I also played a lot of sports outside of school. So when it came to school day finishing, I was playing sports in the evenings with my friends, or whether it was organised sport, or whether I was learning it, whatever. Um, so Obviously, if I, if I want to get better grades, you're going to have to make a sacrifice somewhere. But I think me knowing how to play the system was how I kind of tackled my education. I found the education system itself. I loved I loved being at school, by the way, and I loved the education what I received. But looking back at it now, I feel that it was quite rigid in the sense that it's all exam-based. You The content that you learn hasn't changed much over the years. Um, and and, I, and it was just like grade-based, exam-based. And so when I went to college, I ended up doing a BTEC in sports science, and that was 100% coursework. Uh, and I knew that I wanted to do that because I, I'm not very good at doing exams. Like, it's not something that I... I just didn't know how to revise, or I just didn't really appreciate that exams was the right metric to measure my progress. I didn't think that was probably the best way of measuring my progress. So I went into something, uh, BTEC, and even with the BTEC, I knew how many points, UCAS points I needed to get to university. And I just did enough. I did more than enough to get into the universities. I went to Leeds Met. Um, and even when I was at uni, the same thing. I actually, I actually didn't, what's the word? I didn't approve or I didn't agree of the university education that I received. I thought it was a waste of time. Um, right. So I did a sports science degree. So the reason why I say it's a waste of time was two things. One, the, the the sort of units that we did in that was so like they were so spread out like we didn't have to be at uni for long in the week. So I remember like I'd say like something like fifteen hours a week, and the rest of the time they give it as reading time, which no one ever does. So I thought I thought it was an easy way of them guys to like fob off like all that, and then it it became more about student life. I remember in my third year which is where I got all my grades because in my first and second year, I didn't really do that well. Uh, not not through lack of trying, it was because I didn't know how to write in a way to get your dissertations and your assignments. I was never really taught that way of writing, or how to critique and all that sort of thing. And I only learned that in my third year after Christmas when I did my lit review for my dissertation and I just, everything got scribbled out and uh, my uh, mentor at the time just told me how to do it and I, there was a student who was doing his masters he, he talked me through it and only then in my third year was I did I know how to write properly but in my third year I remember the first semester I only had one unit which was two hours a week and that was it and then I all the modules that I chosen were all in the second semester which was a lot busier but I felt that for me to do a full-time course like I do in like a school timetable or a college timetable I could have probably squeezed all that three years into one year and it would have been a full, four, like a, a, around a 40 hours or a 35 hour timetable. And I just felt that, that that education there was kind of, I felt it was a moneymaker, you know? I just thought that that's, that's what they were doing. They're trying to stretch out the three years, they're doing a course. The second problem I had, which I think um, either the government or the university need to take a little bit of responsibility for is, is how much these university courses do they how many like what job prospectors are there so like a lot of people did sports science but how many sports scientists do you need there were like two three hundred maybe an hour course check that out across the country really the sports scientists are really like in the top clubs football clubs maybe in the premier league maybe a little bit in the championship you might get the odd one in some olympic setup but really like how how are you supposed to get into sports science so i think there needs to be that responsibility of making sure that there's jobs or there's enough jobs out there. So either they limit the amount of people that go on those courses or provide better courses. Um, and I think one of the things with me doing a BTEC, I think the BTEC held me back because I had actually enough points to apply for certain universities, these top, top universities, which I did do, like Loughborough. Loughborough was one that I applied for. And obviously, I don't know the reason why I didn't get it, but I had more than enough points 
but I think some of these top universities don't uh, don't accept the traditional. Uh, sorry, not traditional. They only accept the traditional ways of doing A levels, where the BTEC was quite new, and there's also like apprenticeships and all these other other uh, qualifications. I don't think these top universities will recognise. And I know that now as a teacher, I know that how how rigid uh, they are. And I think the, the other thing I realised that was when I was a trainee teacher. This is actually the only the first time I realised it. Whereas when I was a trainee teacher, um, we had to do the lesson plans. And on the lesson plans, you have to write down how many EL students you had, which is English as additional language, SEN, special educational needs, how many kids were on a free school meal. You even had data of like who, who were on um, welfare, maybe uh, with certain background, maybe a single home parent. Like all of these things got put, taken into account when you did a lesson and you had to kind of uh, deliver different strategies or you had to take the emotional needs in place before you could deliver a lesson. So you had, you had to plan A, B, C, and D. And I realized then that I actually was put into one of those boxes. So me being from an ethnic background and also the fact that I came, my area that I'm from is a low income area. Uh, I was on free school meals during primary school. And I think all of that put it into account definitely in my school years, I think it held me back when I look back at it because my target grades were set. And when I set those those target grades, I got what I needed to do. But maybe if they let me push myself, I would have got a little bit higher. And I remember like I was in top set for my English, uh, sorry, my maths and science. But I remember my science got delayed by another year. So I was only in the top set in year 11. And I think this data that gets pulled out has probably held me back um, in that sense. And just, just one more point. Um, the one biggest thing I think uh, that really helped me and allowed me to get educated was the Labour government because that was what was around at the time. So I had I had all the support that I needed. I remember during um, when I was at school, as the summer holidays, they had play schemes and youth clubs. So during the holidays, we were allowed to go into the park and they, we didn't have to pay for anything. And you had youth workers come and play sport with you, organise sport. You had youth clubs that you could go to on the weekends to keep you out of trouble. They had all of that. Um, when I was at college, I got the allowance, the grants to get through each week. And then also university as well. My university was paid for um, because I didn't, my, my parents didn't earn enough. But like looking back at, look at it now, my, my younger brother who's 18 and is just about to go into uh, university or he's thinking about it, he's got to pay nine grand with no support. So I think if I was, him at uh, his time now, I would, I would probably not go to university because I couldn't afford it. Not because I don't want to go, but I never had that barrier. And I think that's kind of really important that the Labour government for me, I think I was brought up at the right time and that kind of saved me. I was just going to ask you, you mentioned there about feeling that the, the low income box, if you like, held you back. What, what does it look like to be held back by that status as a low income student? So if you, if you, Put, like as a teacher now when we look at like, I might have been classed as an EAL because they classed me as an uh, English as my second language right but I was brought up in a I was brought up learning English so it was in my only language so because I'm coming from an ethnic background and because I, uh, I'm from a low socioeconomic area there's all these stereotypes already built saying that maybe uh, the English language is not great maybe it doesn't have the support uh, maybe they have to go to the mosque and they don't get all the extra support that they need for the education. So then my target grades, we know now as teachers, like we don't do it in our school, but in, in government, they like the government schools, they, they use that data and then they predict your grades. As soon as you come into year seven, they already predicted your year, year 11 GCSE grade. So they basically generalized me and stereotyped me in, into a box. And I think my target grade, whatever my target grade, I either got or I surpassed it. I didn't fall below any of my target grades. But what I'm saying is, if my target grade was higher, would I have got higher grades? And I, and, and I don't know. And to be honest, it doesn't really bother me that much because I got the grades I needed to get to the next step. And that's what, for me, is kind of hypocritical because now I'm a teacher myself and I always tell students to work to their best ability and work, work hard. Um, and I did that. I can honestly say I did that. But grades for me was not everything. I also wanted my life to be around sport, like something similar to what you said. So it was important for me to have that balance. I don't mind taking a, a hit on the grades. I don't. I don't want. To, I don't want to get the A's and A stars if I'm allowed to still play sport. So I was quite happy with that decision. It's um. It's interesting what you mentioned as well, Majid, about the the 
how the Labour government benefited you because of your background. Because from what you've said there and from listening to some of the other episodes, you would be the exact type of person who that government wanted to help get through university and to kind of be socially mobile. Because the criticism of those initiatives as well is that it encouraged everyone to want to go to university, regardless of whether those individuals maybe should have gone off and done an apprenticeship to become an electrician or should have gone and, and worked wherever it may be. But it seems like you were exactly the type of person who that government and those policies were there to help. Um, because some of the criticisms, um, as I say, I can remember when I was at school, and I've mentioned some of the, the diversity of the students I was at school with, there was kind of a, there was a sort of a snobbery about the individuals who didn't go to the, the sixth form college that I went to and then went to university because they all went to another college, Great Yarmouth College, and did practical vocational subjects. And there was definitely um, kind of a snobbery, I felt, inversely in there about those students who, who weren't interested in going to university. And I think that that was a figment of that Labour government's initiatives, um, that someone like you, they really benefited. But other individuals who um, didn't want to go to university and probably shouldn't have gone to university, but have done, had a perfectly um, good life, made a good living for themselves doing a trade, felt that they were perhaps not being um, valued for what they wanted to do. Because I definitely remember that when I got into year 11 and you start to have the careers meetings, um, that the, the teachers who are obviously all university educated um, were very much about individuals going to university. Um, and sometimes it wasn't, I always felt even then that it wasn't the right choice for that individual to go to university. And they didn't feel it was the right choice. Um, so that's an interesting point. It's good that you seem to benefit from those initiatives. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, if we look at it this way, like if I'm looking from my perspective, I would say now um, universities for the rich and not for the poor. You know, it's, yeah. it's about who can afford it. I mean, there's a chance if I was to, if I was applying now, do I really want to get into 45, 50 grand debt? How long is that going to take me to pay off? Is it worth it? I mean, is university education as strong as it used to be now? You know, like with, with how online education is, how people are learning the trade online through videos and experience. You know, I, 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 I really doubt it. But having said that, the university education or all these hoops I've jumped through, like I said before, I knew I had to jump through all these hoops and get this certification, certification and paper because I knew where I wanted to go. I knew it was going to help me. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, so one other question that we can kind of give a good perspective on is how do you think international education is different from that in the UK? Um, I think from the perspective of a teacher, I think that you've got a lot more freedom um, to, to work in a particular way. I mean, one of the reasons that I joined our school when it first opened was the opportunity to be in a startup school that was an international school as well. Because for me, what international education provides is the opportunity to do things differently um, in that we've got these failing systems the world over. I mean, the UK is a, is a failing state school system. If you look at the PISA rankings, you look at the GDP of that country, that system is failing. And so I think international schools offer the opportunity to look at the way people or teachers assume you should do things, whether it's assessment or marking or teaching or whatever, and then go, well, is that the way to do it? Let's do something different. I think they offer teachers more freedom. I think there's a myth that it's somehow easier than teaching in the UK. Uh, and I do think that's a myth. I think there's sometimes an impression that it's sort of butlins, that you're out there and, and it's, it's a laugh. The pressure just looks different. The pressure comes, you're, you know, you're held accountable by um, students and parents more than you probably are in, in many state schools. When I taught in the UK up in Blackburn, again, in an area of absolute poverty, as we've talked about before, by UK standards, there was no pressure from the parents. Um, there was pressure from Ofsted but there was no pressure from the parents and there was no real pressure from the students. So I think the pressures look different. You've also got the volatility, how volatile it is to live abroad. Um, and we've, we're experiencing a lockdown here, for example, and living through COVID here. And there's an unpredictability to it. And you have to respond to that. And you have to be able to deal with that, that you're not in kind of mummy's arms back in England, that this is the, this is a wide 
bad wild world and I think that that's another pressure that happens when you work and teach abroad that happens in your home life and your day-to-day -day life that of course bleeds into the workplace so that's another challenge I think um, and I think as well international education it, it, it provides opportunities to just see how big the world is I mean I we talked at the start I know you and Joe have talked about identity I mean, Joe will know this. Norfolk is a very, very insular place. There's no motorways in Norfolk, for example. Mm. It's geographically completely detached from the rest of the UK. Yeah. It's not a place where people are really mobile. And they haven't been for thousands of years. It's like that for a reason. So not only are they not mobile geographically, they're not mobile in their own minds because their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents have been very much stay in Norfolk. So to come out to these different places you realize just how insignificant you are mm. and how, um, I mean, I mentioned my own school and I suppose in some respects I was a sort of academically one of the bigger fish in that little tiny, tiny pond because of the nature of the school. And then you come away and you realize how insignificant um, you are compared to, to what's really happening. Um, and I think the students benefit from that as well. They benefit from the diversity of your background, the diversity of my background, um, so I think there's some of the benefits to it and some of the differences. Yeah, you made some really good points there. Um, I never really considered the different pressures, you know, like I, I do feel guilty um, when you said it, it seems somehow easier, but it's, it's not true because it's different. Um, the pressures are different. That's what I feel guilty about. I feel guilty sometimes um, that my friends or my previous colleagues are having a tougher time in the UK. Um, but uh, like you, like what you just said there was brilliant, and I think Joe said it as well. Like everyone has the right to be educated, and it's something that just doesn't sit with me right. But I know, I know that the, that there's more good that I'm doing out here as well. You know, for me, um, as a teacher, like we have smaller class sizes, so with, and better facilities. Um, so as a student, they have more time to progress, and as a teacher, you've got more time to help your students progress. So I think the environment's a lot. Uh, easier to deal with and like you said there there's no Ofsted so a lot of the systems that you have in place are led by management with this with this teachers involved um, and you can you can pick and choose what works and what doesn't work and it's very unique to that school it doesn't mean it will work to the school down the road it might be completely different but that's what's good about it you can kind of pick and choose what you think will work for your school um, I think as a teacher myself um, my teaching has progressed so quick and so much in such a short amount of time because I'm allowed the freedom. Um, so like, for example, I don't have to keep doing lesson plans. I don't have to keep getting observed. I don't have to teach to a rigid, rigid curriculum. I can change that curriculum and make it more, um, more relatable to the students that I teach um, and also to the context and international context. Um, so that allows me to kind of teach the way I want to teach. Again, very similar to working in a school. In my class, I can kind of pick the things that I like and don't like what I think is best for the students. Um, and I also kind of mentioned um, the curriculum. There's a lot more flexibility um, in terms of what you can do. So for example, as a PE teacher, depending on the facilities that I have, like for example, um, I taught volleyball that I've never taught before, table tennis that I've never taught before, uh, handball these are the sports that I don't usually you don't usually get in the UK especially with the facilities so uh, that's allowed me to be more flexible in, in terms of the curriculum that I teach but also then it allows me to modify games and teach them like transferable skills that can be taught across um, across other sports as well other activities Andy you you you're quite active on the TES website um, which is like a, an educational website mainly for teachers, but I mean, anyone can go on there. You've written an article um, titled, Wouldn't it be better if international schools had local teachers? Do you want to kind of explain what the article was about and your justification for writing it? Yeah, so the article was about um, how, as international teachers, there's a kind of irony to the fact that we're here teaching Malaysian students in, in our case on the whole um, which therefore means that a Malaysian teacher is not teaching their own people essentially um, so I wrote a piece for the TES recently which was triggered by my work here really 
about the different ways that the local um, population here view different nationalities. And that essentially, if they pay for an international school, they want firstly, or often a British or an American or an Australian or what they would consider a Western, whatever that word means now, a Western teacher teaching their child. Um, and the piece was about what a local teacher offers an international school. Um, and one of the things that I focused on in the piece that really, really interests me as a Brit is this fascination with all things British. Um, and I used some sort of statistics at the beginning about in China, you know, 40 new British school brands are opening up in the next 10 years. Um, you've got Wickham School, you've got Dulwich College, you've got Harrow, you've got Beacon House, you've got um, Sherbourne, and they all build and use this kind of a vision of what Britain is, which looks like something from kind of a Harry Potter movie um, with giant halls and people playing cricket and kind of everyone's from the upper middle classes and they all know the Queen. And, and they, it kind of buys into that. And, and I wrote this piece about what international schools are losing by not valuing the local teacher. Um, but I'm also, of course, aware that it's a business um, and that you're paying for a certain brand and a certain image. Um, and just about how, as an international teacher, I sometimes feel a bit awkward about my existence here, mm. teaching Malaysians. And I often sometimes think about in the UK, it would be the complete opposite, where if you're not taught by a Brit, there's a massive issue um, we hear about, you know, if you've got a, a, an English teacher in Britain who's, I don't know, Spanish, for example, that there's sometimes an issue with that. And what, so, so it's the complete inverse of that. So for me, it was just about the, the awkwardness I sometimes feel when I walk up the stairs at work and I walk past one of our colleagues who's Malaysian. And I think about some of the benefits that I'm afforded um, and that I'm privy to and privileged to have and, and how that disparity must feel to the individual whose roots and DNA is here. And I'm just a, I'm just a guest. I'm just a, a guy who's here. Um, and, and even when I taught in the Middle East, I felt similar about how that works because I think coming from a privileged first world Western country, we haven't experienced that. It's the complete opposite. Um, I think the only point I'd like to make is that uh, very similar to, to what you said, um, but uh, as well, like the previous episode, we talked about systemic racism and how like certain systems are built in place. And I can kind of um, relate to what you're saying because my wife is a local and she has uh, a British degree, a British teacher certificate, uh, but she gets paid a local wage. So she would not be employed by certain schools because she doesn't have the right passport. Um, and she then also now works in international schools as well, but she gets paid like a third of the salary that I receive. So there is a system there that's, that's, that's kind of stopping the things that you're saying. Um, because at the end of the day, it is, it is a business. It's a consumer. Consumer wants white, Western or British, whatever people to teach them because in their head, that's what they think. That's what they see. So that's what they get. And I think, it's important to note, note that the people inside the school don't necessarily think that. Like the people in management, the people who run the school, the, the admin staff don't necessarily, they most of them probably would say that it's best to have an international school with a mixture of teachers from different backgrounds. But unfortunately, the system that is in place for international schools, because they have to be able to make the revenue to stay open and afford these salaries, they have to kind of play with what it is. I had a question from Tom, Tom, who we both know, was a, a friend and colleague of mine. He asks, and this is probably something um, we both feel guilty about sometimes or maybe deal with, but his question is, do you ever feel international schools such as ours are only for a select and very wealthy group of society? Are we in some ways contributing to widening the gap between the rich? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, that's something when I first moved out to the Middle East, I really struggled with for about a year, I would say, because I'd come from teaching in Blackburn, where the moral purpose of what I was doing, I could literally see every day. Um, you, you're working with, yeah, basically individuals, young individuals with the least life chances statistically in the whole of the UK. So that moral purpose, you didn't need to be reminded of it. You didn't need some 
someone in senior management to tell you about it because it was so obvious to you. And you did. You had a kind of um, hubris about you that you knew you were doing something really important. It was obvious. It was like being a, a doctor on the front line or somebody out in a, in a war zone helping. It, it felt like that. And that was maybe my youthful naivety at the time. Um, but then when I got out to the Middle East and I went from teaching some of the poorest in Britain to some of the richest in the world, literally in a matter of, of, of months from leaving one to starting the other, I really struggled with that. And I didn't have the kind of enlightenment, I suppose, at that point to understand that it's not just about wealth that creates um, riches um, or lack of wealth that creates poverty. And it was my wife, actually, who'd been teaching, who's a teacher as well, who'd been teaching in the Middle East for a number of years, who said to me one day when I was kind of on my soapbox about how much more important the work I was doing back in Blackburn was, she said to me, don't mistake the fact that these children are wealthy for the fact that they don't need support. Um, and it literally, one of those quotes or lines to that effect that stop you in your tracks. Because when I look back now on my career, I mean, I'm coming into my 13th year in teaching or 12th, one of the two, some of the most deprived students I've worked with emotionally have come from some of the wealthier backgrounds, be it here or in Qatar, more so than I saw in Blackburn. Um, and it took me to get to a certain point of maturity to understand that, that just because they turn up for school in a Porsche, they might not have seen their father for six months, or they might um, come from a particularly dysfunctional family because of the fact that there's wealth. So I think with that one, you have to look beyond the, um, the way the students are kind of presented to you in terms of their background and they're paying 13 or 14,000 pounds a year to join the school um, and, try, and try and get to the human story um, because it's a sign of maturity, I think, in the individual as well to realise that. I think as well when it comes to our work as teachers, when we are teaching students here in Malaysia, probably more than in Qatar for me, who are wealthy and are actually from very functional backgrounds, we want those students to go back out into the world to help those students from Blackburn. You want them to have the skills to go back out and to use their opportunity in their education to pick up those individuals. And that's one of the reasons I love our school, because I think that the students that we create who do get incredible scores on the IB that we all love, they then go back, and I see it on LinkedIn, I see it when they come back into school, I see it when they talk to you. They do go out, and they're not just looking to be investment bankers. They're looking to get involved in local politics and local um, startup organisations and charity work. And I think that's, that's where you can kind of square that circle that Tom's asked there, in not just what you teach them academically, but how you inculcate in them the character and the knowledge of their own privilege. So they go back in and they pick what they're going to do with their privilege very selectively, rather than just go and see how much money they can earn. And I definitely feel that with the students we work with, Majid, that they do often, more than often actually, um, want to go back out into the world and do something with the fact that they are from privileged backgrounds. If they have had a privileged in terms of wealth and a privileged in terms of attention and time background. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you said there, actually. You covered all my points. Um, I would agree, like, now, being in a pastoral role where, we, where we're uh, focusing on the child's well-being, a lot of the parents do chuck money at their kid and kind of throw it into the school, and then they want, the school deals with everything. So these, these students are, like, really emotionally weak um, or mentally weak and they, they need a lot of picking up to do I think very similar to what you said about pressures of work, working in an international school the pressures are different I think it's the same for the students as well I think the the, um, the problems are different it's, it, it's the same sort of it takes the same amount of time takes the same amount of work um, but the problems are different and that's all it is I think they um, the neglect there's neglect in different ways and I think the neglect that the students uh, are accustomed to in the UK is different to the neglect that they're accustomed to over here. Um, the one thing that I also put about like the the couple of things is that everyone has has a right to an education. So whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, everyone has a right to an education. And unfortunately, the local government system here is not as 
standardized or as strong as it is about the UK government. So that's why a lot of parents do opt for the international education. And in terms of getting their child the best opportunity to work internationally, that's only fair for them to have that education. Just because they're born in a different country and don't have a system in place does not mean it's, it's, it's right for them. So if they have the opportunity and then they have the money and the means to do it, why not? Um, and I think the last thing about what you said about with us as teachers and educators, we're bringing up students to give back to the world. The only thing I would say about that, and it's not necessarily their fault, but something that they might need to be aware of is that if they come from a wealthy background and, and they've had it easy, sometimes when you're serving the people that you need to serve, the people that build, like, who you're not really experienced that life. And the only way, and that's, that's kind of coming from a personal level, like the people who are politicians now in, in the UK, they don't really come from the same background I do. So how, do, how are they supposed to serve me? And it's important if they are listening to the podcast, maybe they are. Um, I think you just got to make sure you have a good group of diverse people around you. It doesn't mean that's not your fault or your responsibility that you came up from a different background and you were brought up with money and you had a lot of opportunity. That's not your fault. Um, but when you do get in those opportunities where you can make change, make sure you have diverse uh, perspectives and diverse people around you and then that's the way you that's the way you tackle it and that's why a lot of the problems do happen when we create policies and changes and stuff like that so it's important that you you have those people around you last question andy um i think both of us are parents both of us educators more or less our like speciality if people are going to be parents who are young parents or who are bringing up teenagers or maybe they've already brought up their kids and something that they can reflect on as an educator we kind of see a different side to parenting is we're quite lucky in that sense that we can take the good and the bad out of all the different parenting styles that we see amongst the students so what have you learned from your time as a teacher that you would give advice to for parents in terms of bringing up their children uh well i certainly never as a parent of a two-year-old, I'd never dream of giving anybody any advice because I don't feel like I've got a clue what I'm doing most of the time. But I think as a teacher, um, it's pretty simple. Uh, encourage them to read. I, I really think that. Encourage them to read freely and read widely um, and, and not read because the teacher's told them to. Get, get them able to seek out their own education so that if they don't go to school or they've got a poor teacher, it doesn't matter. Um, I, I think that's the, the best students I've taught. And when I say best, I don't just mean the academically best, but the whole student in terms of the best that I've, I've taught. They're wide readers. They've got a love of learning that hasn't been forced into them. It's been encouraged and kind of balmed. Uh, and it's wide and it's varied and it's not that organized, but it, it's passionate. So I just think get them involved in reading and, and model it model being interested in different things um, not just English because I'm an English teacher but all sorts of different things and, and just keep encouraging them to, to seek out information read the newspaper read books watch stuff be curious I think that's interesting uh, what you said about modeling that sounds very much to what your parents did for you right I think that's what that's what the environment that you that you came in that's good that you kind of want to carry that on um, and and the, the thing about reading as well, like I wouldn't say I was the best reader. I, I was kind of one of those that got forced and when we had to like learn poetry or we had to cover content in our lessons. But I think the, mo the most I've got out of education and the best education I've had is when I've left university. Like when I've now, now, and when we're talking about reading, like there's so much stuff around that you can read. There's so many different perspectives. Like people are able to blog. You don't need to have to have professional writers anymore. Anyone can write on the internet. And I think what you said about reading, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a book that's given to you by the school. It could be reading about different topics that you're interested in. But again, try to get a diverse content in terms of what you read as well. Um, I would say, um, I think this is more, probably I've seen more through international schools. I don't know if it's like this in the UK anymore, but it wasn't ever like that when I was there. But all is focus on effort. Like try not to think about grids. Um, always talk about processes. Talk about things that you need you can do because effort is something that you have a hundred percent control in. I'm talking about 
the children. So always tell them to focus on the effort. And if it doesn't work out, then you go back to the drawing board and you and you tweak it. Um, and generally what happens most of the time, if your effort is 100%, you finish a subject or you finish that school year and you say, I've given it everything, your grades usually reflect that. Um, I would say make the most out of your school community life. Um, and I'm saying that as a PE teacher, if your school has a good sports program or there's loads of uh, community links that you can do volunteering and stuff, make the most of it. Because when you do leave school, that kind of structured um, environment is gone. So make the most of it. Uh, and plus, usually at that age, um, you can make all the mistakes that you need to make. And I think the last thing that I would say um, for university especially, uh, I find a lot of students who come to that stage get really nervous because now they're spending a lot of money. They might be spending their parents' money or they might be taking on the debt. University is not for everyone, um, but I do appreciate the amount of doors it's opened up for me. But if you feel that you're not ready, take a gap year or take a couple of years out. Um, I think if you get the opportunity to go and work full-time, part-time in, in any sort of field, it'll force you to think a certain way and it'll force you to kind of work out what you want to do. And also the fact that you get to meet lots of different people from different phases of their life, kind of tell you what worked for them, what didn't work. Um, and then you can always go to university later. That, that'll be my advice. Uh, let's finish there. But uh, you've been someone who's listened to, I think, all the podcasts we're recording on Monday. So I don't think you've probably not listened to the, the fourth one about racism, but you've listened to the previous three. What, uh, what's been your thoughts? What's been your takeaways from, from the previous episodes? I really enjoyed them. Uh, I thought particularly the discussions around identity were interesting, about displacement and kind of, we touched on some of it today, really, how messy it is to, 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 to be alive, really, how it's not easy to fit people into boxes and it's not easy to kind of compartmentalise like that. I thought that was really good to, to listen to that. Um, and your, your background is very interesting. And I think that the contrast with Joe's is interesting as well. Um, so I think the fact that it, it, it allows you guys to talk about some quite sensitive areas um, is really healthy. Um, and I think that it's something that's, that's worth listening to. And you get to learn more about people, which I think is always good. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Right, guys, we're going to finish there. Please, our episode today was about education. Uh, if you feel that there's other people that would benefit, please share it, please subscribe, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, Andy, for coming today. Appreciate it. Thank you.